Hello everyone, it's Ryan Woods, and this is the End of the Woods Podcast, and today I finally have a guest. Okay, I stopped telling people I was going to get guests because people would bail on me, and I just stopped telling people because I got embarrassed, and I was like, look, I'm an adult who can't get people on his podcast because his podcast kind of sucks, and look, it was it was a moment of reflection for me. David Dan comes on, makes everything worth it. I have a really good conversation with him about everything from uh, oil and gas prices to Bitcoin to sports cards at the end there, and then in between we talk about student loans, and it's all good. We talked about 2008 financial crisis. I show off a little bit of my private school education here, right? People say, Ryan, oh, you just rant. Oh, Ryan, you're just rambling on your podcast. You're not even talking about anything. How many times are you going to complain about a refrigerator, Ryan? Oh, how many times are you going to complain about your dead dog, Ryan? He died two years ago. Get over yourself. Two and a half almost, you, you fucking loser. Listen, all these are valid points, but today I have David Dan, so none of that matters. We're talking good stuff. Please, if you like the episode, subscribe, rate, and review. Say something nice in the review section down below. If you are on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify, please say something nice. And if you would be so kind, leave a five-star review. And if I could interest you in following me at the links below, that would be very nice. Tell your friends. You know, tell them, hey, look, you know, Ryan sometimes complains about a lot of stuff. He talks about his dead dog too much that, you know, really hasn't affected his life in any shape or form. It's getting kind of weird now. You know, tell your friends that this podcast isn't just him complaining. Without further ado, here's David Dayan. Enjoy the music. Enjoy your weekend. I hope you like the bonus. Thank you so much. Peace. Okay, this is the End of the Woods podcast, and today I have a very special guest. I am joined by David Dayan. He is the executive producer or editor of The American Prospect. He is the author of Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power and The Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, which I just asked him about. And he runs, do you run The Prospect? Is that what that is? Can you tell people about yeah, it? Yeah, executive editor just mainly means I run the magazine. Yeah, we have a yeah. uh, six times a year print magazine, a daily website and uh, newsletters, podcasts, the whole nine. Perfect. Yeah, I've been reading it a lot recently, especially in the last two years. So if you need to learn anything, we're going to go over a few topics today with David. He's one of the people that I read because he's very, I don't know how to word this without sounding silly. He makes it simple for people like me to understand. Uh, he's, <laughs> he says things that I can understand in a way that makes sense to me. So I'm going to ask him a few things that I'd ask for people that listen. I would go, hey, what do you want to learn about? And we have a few things today. So first, I want to, a lot of people's minds, I want to ask you about your, before we get into, you know, gas prices and things like that, people mm -hmm. really, really, really hot topic these days. Yeah. How about we start with your start in journalism? How did you get your start? When did you start and, and going from there? No, sure. Uh, so I um, was in television, actually. I was a television and film editor. And in the early 2000s, these things called blogs came on the scene. And uh, I got interested in them. And I started my own political blog in 2004. Uh, and if you were uh, writing about politics online at that time, you were part of a pretty small group. And you could, uh, you know, 
know other people who were doing that and move through the ranks pretty swiftly because uh, there just wasn't there weren't that many people doing it. Right. So uh, that's what I was able to do uh, through, you know, writing on on group blogs like Daily Coast and uh, just meeting people. Um, I was able to uh, further that along and ended up writing for a pretty prominent at the time group blog during Obama's first term called Fire Dog Lake. And uh, from there, uh, moved uh, into journalism because I just sort of knew a lot of people that were writing about politics. And did that eventually transition into writing? I mean, politics and economics feel very intertwined, but did it transition yeah. into that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I, I have looked back at my writing the week uh, that Lehman went under, Lehman Brothers, and uh, I was not writing a lot about economics at that time. It was really about uh, the 2008 election and politics and, and things of that nature. Uh, obviously, the, the financial crisis was a, a major moment, uh, I think, for the country, uh, and I, it certainly spurred me to uh, try to understand that better, and uh, I sort of went on a journey of self-discovery, as it were, <laughs> uh, to try to figure that all out, and uh, it led me into uh, really trying to get a handle on understanding on the economy and 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 really part of what I see my my role as is is kind of translating the business pages for ordinary people and 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 trying to explain why it matters. Yeah, there's I think it was important. Lehman Brothers, obviously, for the listeners, I believe that Jim Cramer was on his show and he said, Don't worry about Lehman Brothers. I believe that <laughs> was the thing. And they, sounds they about right. In, I think they went under 48 hours later or something <laughs> crazy like that. So um, it might not have been, it might actually have been the next morning, which would have been poetic. But um, so if so, we do have a few things. I will ask though, the 2008 crisis, like you said, you went on a journey of self reflection. My dad lost his job. Mm -hmm. He was laid off. And my mom, I think, had her hours cut or something like that. She worked for a hospital. So it ended up, I don't think they lost any business. Um, they've actually gotten much bigger. But the, the, so I think it was, I was very young at the time. I was in fifth grade. So I really didn't understand wow. why my dad was losing the, my, I know, but I didn't really understand why he was losing his job. It just kind of felt like a blip, right? Like, oh, okay. Right. And it didn't make sense. But my parents had just bought a house. And so my houses are very, um, uh, what is the word? You can't flip them very quickly. Uh, I don't even know. You couldn't at that time. No, you really, they were kind of stuck and they're still there to this day though. So I guess it ended up working out. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we do have a few topics. Gas prices are on a lot of people's mind. This has become the most politicized economic topic almost yeah. ever in my, in my life, especially that and student loans, which we can get into. Sure. Um, so gas prices, you see the Biden stickers. He says, I did that. He's pointing at the price thing. And it's, it's very, a very uh, overused joke at this point. Those people probably think they're really hilarious putting those on there. Uh, <laughs> they get a little chuckle and that's all that matters. But yeah. can you explain to people what it meant? Because I try to tell people oil is a commodity. It's traded as a commodity. Right. So I know I sound, I say that and I make silly jokes. So people really don't take me seriously. So maybe you can back me up. There was a time I see these photos now. It's like two years ago. And it, people are like, don't you guys miss this? And it's $1.80 gas prices here in Ohio where I'm at. Uh -huh. And I go, yeah, well, there was nobody going anywhere. I don't know if you guys remember, 
there was not, there was no travel. We were all stuck inside. So can you explain what happened at the beginning of the pandemic to oil prices when they went negative and then the yeah. course of action since? Yeah, there were a number of factors here. So obviously, as you say, transportation just absolutely crashed uh, after the pandemic hit and everybody went into lockdown. And that created a, a, a real collapse of oil prices where, as you correctly say, at one point they went sharply negative. In other words, you were being paid to take oil off the hands of other people, <laughs> um, which is you know, quite stunning if you think about it today. Um, as a result of that, pe you know, people in the oil industry, there were two things that happened. Number one, a lot of investments that were made over the previous decade in particularly domestic production, like fracking and oil fracking, things like that, uh, washed out. Uh, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars lost by investors over a, a decade long period. And uh, investors became incredibly gun shy on whether or not they were going to fund uh, further oil production again. So you get to a point like today where you know, oil is uh, obviously high priced and you would think that that would spur a lot of people to uh, explore for more oil because there's there's a lot of money in it. If you yes. if you find it, uh, you can you can flip that for a, a ton of dough. But you need capital in order to do that. You need the ability to uh, set up an uh, exploration rig and 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 conduct uh, all of the things that you have to conduct to to, to search for oil and investors are just unwilling to give up that capital uh, to allow oil companies to do further capital investment and expenditures. So uh, we have seen earnings calls where oil companies say, we don't care if it goes to 100 a barrel, we don't care if it goes to 120 a barrel, we don't care if it goes to 150 a barrel, <laughs> we are not doing any more production. So you have increased demand off the bottom of the pandemic and you have this supply that oil companies are telling you is not going to change. So a simple econ 101 would tell you that if supply is staying the same and demand's going way up, uh, then you know, you're, you're gonna have higher prices. So that's part one. Part two is actually even more interesting and it's around refinery capacity. So US refinery capacity has dropped significantly in the last two years. And part of this is that uh, there was kind of a, a bet made uh, uh, and, and businesses do this all the time. They try to assume how many people are gonna buy my product over the next year? Yes. Uh, what, is, what, you know, what are the expectations there? And then they set their production schedules based on those expectations. So when oil crashed, and when transportation just went way, way down, there was the assumptions made of, well, how many people are gonna be driving in 2021 and in 2022? And those assumptions were set just way below where we ended up. Uh, it's almost like the business community didn't believe that the government would supply enough resources in terms of fiscal relief to actually get people back on their feet quickly. They assumed it would be more like what happened after the financial crisis when it actually sure. took a decade 
for us to get to the same level of jobs. This time it's taken about two years. So uh, they underinvested and they took a lot of refineries offline. So refineries is what essentially turns oil into gasoline, right? It, it's, it's that choke point uh, where uh, you, you have the, the you know, it's, it's the way that you get uh, resources over to the pump. Yes. And uh, because we have such diminished capacity on refining, um, there's, there's an actual uh, uh, instrument that kind of gauges this, and it's known, this is like a technical term, it's known as the crack spread. <laughs> so uh, the crack spread is sort of the difference between how much oil there is and how much refined gasoline there is. And if the crack spread is high, it means that there isn't enough capacity. There isn't enough refining capacity. And it means that refineries are making a lot of money because they are in high demand. And the crack spread is higher than it's ever been. Um, just long story short, uh, it was kind of bumping along at the same rate uh, until 2020, 2021. And then it starts going up, uh, you know, two, threefold. And so that's really where we're at right now is that we have not enough refining capacity. We don't have enough oil being produced. And uh, uh, as a result, not only are we seeing high prices, but because refinery is such a, refining is such a bottleneck, um, they're even higher than what you would expect given the price of oil. So there's usually a very one-to-one -one relationship between what the price of oil is and the price of a gallon of gasoline. It it's usually moves in the same position. Right now, the price of a gallon of gasoline is something like 60 or 70 cents per gallon more than we would expect, given right. the price of oil. And that's all because of refinery capacity. So is there any, is there any do you think, big corporation, um, corporate greed is basically what I'm asking. Is there, do you think there's any corporate greed there when you say there is that difference between the 60 to 70 cents between the oil and the gas price? Do you think there's any corporate greed involved? which I, I believe there yeah, is. I mean, but... certainly the big oil companies who also own a lot of the refineries made a, a huge mistake in, in determining, you know, how much, how much capacity would be needed. There's also been just a tremendous amount of consolidation in refining capacity over uh, the last, you know, going back 10 years, 15 years. And so this becomes sort of this key bottleneck uh, and it's a way to raise prices, because if you don't refine enough, then the prices are going to go up. Uh, you're also going to get, you're going to be able to capture more spread, you know, in, in the refinery process. So, I mean, I think the answer is yes. You're seeing profit margins just absolutely skyrocket throughout the industry. Um, and uh, if you're deliberately setting the mechanism for turning oil into gasoline too low, and you've done this for like a couple of years and you haven't taken the <laughs> steps to put any new capacity online, then, uh, you know, it's hard to say that you're not doing it deliberately. And, right. then, and then, you know, uh, the fact that investors are sort of deliberately keeping prices high by saying we're not going to invest in more capacity, certainly they're in, enjoying really high margins from that. Yes. as well. So uh, all of this is kind of interlocked with one another. Uh, how do you disaggregate the mistakes, the incompetence, the corporate greed? I mean, it's, it's all kind of, kind of of a piece of one another. 
but I would say that uh, certainly there are significant problems in this market such that uh, we, we, we need to figure out a solution that isn't just hoping that uh, the oil companies cut us a break. Well, hoping that an oil company does the right thing feels like we'll be waiting a very long time. Correct. Um, so I do, I want to ask one more thing about this. Do you think there's anything that obviously I brought up the stickers on the gas pumps yeah. of Biden. Do you think there's anything he could do to say, Hey, cause shareholders want the share price to be higher. They want to get paid out dividends. They want companies right. to make a bunch of money, obviously. Right. Do you think that there's anything Biden can do to say, hey, we need to lower these gas prices? Like people are facing this issue. Right. Is there anything he can do? Is there any mechanism he has in place to do this? I mean, there are a couple things that can be done to spur production. It involves using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We know that Biden has has let loose a lot of those resources from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. One thing he could do is sort of give an advance guarantee and say, we're going to refill that. And we're going to refill it at this price so that you oil companies know that if you start increasing your investment, you're going to get this price. You're not going to collapse the market. We're going to put a floor under it. And uh, that could potentially spur production. All of that is, even if they said tomorrow that's what they're going to do, the, the actual mechanism of, of, of increasing investment in oil and gas production and, and then getting it done uh, such that it would, uh, you know, assist uh, uh, prices by increasing supply, that's many, many months, if not years yeah. off. Uh, what he can do right now, I mean, you know, if, if Biden had the ability to wave a magic wand and end the war in, in Ukraine, that would certainly be helpful. Yeah. That's been about 20% of the run-up in gas prices recently. Um, if uh, a deal was made on, uh, with Iran on the nuclear deal, that would probably help. Uh, uh, other diplomatic efforts to uh, maximize supply. But of course, you know, there's a tension here, right? I mean, yep. uh, you at, at this point, because gas prices are so visceral to the public and, and have such a political impact, you want to try to create a situation to bring them down. But at the same time, encouraging the burning of more fossil fuels is devastating for the planet and ultimately bad for the bottom line if, if it creates more extreme weather events and droughts and the kinds of things that you have to spend massive amounts of money to fix. So uh, this is a tough spot and it's really, it's really the ultimate payback for, for years and years of failing to move rapidly to renewable energy. That's obviously the other thing yes. that the administration can do. But again, that's a long-term project to actually get us into the green transition. Yeah, it's not like we have, it's not like there's tomorrow he can just open up a, a million solar plants or whatever to exactly curtail this. Well, one thing they've done, the government has effectively, I'm going to transition here. This is my first time ever doing a good transition. Um, <laughs> uh, has effectively bought all the student loan debt and effectively canceled it for two and a half years now until the end of the summer. Right. And I've, I've seen a few things. You've, you've brought up um, these for-profit colleges and the prospect you've mm -hmm. brought up that that. Is there anything... Now, people always talk about it. It's a very politicized thing. Like, oh, they're giving handouts again. Obviously, one side will use it one way. Republicans will say they're right. giving handouts, you know, and, and so on. So it's a very fine line obviously but they've effectively ended student loan debt without saying it because i haven't 
paid my student loans back in two years. Right. People I know haven't paid their student loans back in two years. And your and your interest rate has been zero. Yeah, it's been stopped. It's basically just right. been frozen in an account, and they've yeah. pr- done all this. So, what what are the biggest hurdles to the student loan cancellation? And do you think that because they've basically promised ten thousand dollars, it seems like that's where they're going to land from reading a lot right. of stuff. Right. Do you think there's anything else? Do you think there's any? What else do you think can be done to cancel student loan debt? Well, I mean, it's entirely political, right? I mean, uh, the, we, we know that under the Higher Education Act, the Department of Education has the discretion to uh, engage in what is called compromise and settlement, uh, where they could cancel a portion, uh, cancel the interest rate, or cancel all uh, student loan debt uh, that is federally held uh, if they want to. Uh, we know this because they're uh, effectively doing it right yeah, now with the payment done. moratorium, with yes. the payment pause. Um, and they have done it in discrete circumstances, like uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago with the Corinthian Colleges, which was this for-profit, uh, very predatory uh, set of campuses. Uh, and they said every loan from 1995, when the Corinthian Colleges originated, until 2015, when they shut down, is going to be canceled, and we're going to uh, refund any payments that you made on debt if you have debt outstanding. So uh, obviously, there is massive authority mm-hmm. there. Um, that that's using a slightly different authority, which is called borrower defense to repayment, which says that if your school defrauded you, that you can uh, you know get get restitution. Um, the uh, compromise and settlement authority is a little different and just says that the education secretary has broad discretion to uh, handle student loan debt in the way they see fit. Uh, I, I suspect that sometime, but certainly before August 31st, which is when the next payment pause expires, uh, certainly before then, we're going to get some sort of answer on this. Sure. So sometime this summer. Um, yes, the administration is looking at 10000 uh, some unions and some other progressive groups are trying to up that to twenty thousand. If you did twenty thousand dollars in student loan debt extinguished for every individual who has it on federal loans, that would fully extinguish about half of all uh, people with uh, federal student loan debt, and it would take away at least half from about seventy percent of that population. So that's, you know, fairly significant. I mean, it's on a a monetary number. A lot of people have student loan debt in the hundred thousand, 150,000. That's, that's usually people with graduate loans, right? Like major student debt. Uh, It, it would be, you know, obviously lesser circumstance for those people. I call Um, those people, they love school. I just, I can't imagine. (laughs) Right. Uh, But you know, for the vast majority of the 40% of people with student loan debt who didn't finish college, uh, it would probably wipe out all of their all of their loans. And of course, they didn't get the college wage premium out of that because they didn't finish. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I think 20 is, there's a possibility that they'll get to that number. Uh, the other thing to be determined is whether or not they're going to use some sort of income verification test on all this. Um, obviously, if you if you say yes, everyone will get their student loans uh, uh, extinguished uh, at this at this dollar amount uh, unless you make more than one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, which is what they're saying right now. Okay, uh, that would get rid. That would 
really not do very much. They're only about 3% of people with student loan debt who make over $150,000 a year. So you'd be putting in this mechanism because you would then have to figure out, uh, have to uh, you know, uh, convince the government that you make less than that. And it sounds like it's an easy thing to do, but the education department and the IRS by law can't talk to each other. They can't share <laughs> information or data. So it will fall on the individual uh, whether they have to send in their tax returns or whether they have to, you know, come up with some other some other uh, uh, mechanism. Yeah. I don't know, sending in pay stubs or something like that. Uh, this creates this sort of bureaucratic hurdle that uh, what we've seen over every kind of program like this that we've ever had in the government. Uh, that that inevitably leaves people behind and usually people at the low income end of the scale. Uh, the Corinthian uh, situation that we talked about, interestingly, is automatic. It does because it's all people who had a Corinthian loan. There is no income test. There is no eligibility test. They say we are going to they're sending a letter that says we're going to cancel your loans and then they're just going to cancel it. And that's an effective program. I would argue that uh, putting in this elaborate mechanism to verify people's income to only get three percent of all uh, borrowers yeah. out of the out of the picture is self-defeating. Um, there are probably ways that you could do it by proxy, where it wouldn't um, involve having to force this burden on people. You could say only only undergraduate debt, for example, uh, and that could be the demarcation line. Or uh, you could do it through what they call a self-attestation, where uh, you know the 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 person who's getting uh, the debt extinguished just sends in a piece of paper that says I make less than one hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars a year, and uh, you know, and and that's it. And and the government essentially says, okay, sure, uh, and then maybe, but it also puts people on the line down the road if. Uh, if they did make 150000 a year at that time uh, to be prosecuted in some way or yeah, to have, have the money asked, audited and have the money asked back. So uh, I don't know. I, I just feel like we have been down this road with these kinds of income tests, means tests, and they don't seem to work very well. They end up leaving people behind. Uh, it's not clear what they're actually going to accomplish um, uh, certainly if it's, if it's meant to, to forestall an argument from the right that says that rich people are getting their loans extinguished, the right will just move the goalposts. They'll say, well, their parents Always. made a lot of money or, yeah. you know, some other, some other way to, to demonize this whole thing from happening. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot being accomplished and, uh, it, it's just creating a burden for the individuals. Yeah. I, and I also don't want, I always hate the argument like, well, you knew what you were doing when you went to school and you took out all these loans. I actually think that's uh, very wrong because giving a loan, you know, you give a blank check basically to someone like me at 18. You're like, hey, you're going to college. Here's however much money you need. I went in, I applied for it. I got this much money. I didn't even need it all. And I was like, well, I have all this money now. Like I'm, I'm school rich. I could buy anything I need. And so I always think that the loans are the pred I, the problem isn't so much the debt it's how these people come about the debt like how expensive school is so i think there's a larger right. problem but obviously starting it's easier to start with hey let's get rid of these people's debt and we'll work on something else later right and i mean i i would say that 
if it's a one-time extinguishment of 10,000, 20,000, whatever it is, and that's the end of it, and then debt just starts piling up again, then it will have not been successful. Maybe I mean, a failure, I yeah. think I think what it needs to do is spur a reckoning about the way that we finance higher education in this country, which has been shown not to work. Not only uh, are there these super high default rates, although default is kind of a misnomer because uh, the way that student loans are set up, you can't default really. You you <laughs> you uh, you your wages can be garnished, your social right. security can be garnished, your tax uh, returns uh, can be taken. You can't you can't uh, file bankruptcy to, to discharge the loans. So uh, it's, it's, it's a guaranteed uh, uh, return for the government. And uh, also it's a large money-making scheme for the government. They're, mm -hmm. they're charging an interest rate, even though interest is supposed to be the protection for lenders who carry the risk of the loan not being paid back. Well, in this case, there's no risk. There's no risk of this loan not being paid back. And yet there's still this yes. very large interest rate put on top of it, which makes the program a large moneymaker for the government. So the government is financing some of its operations on the backs of students trying to better themselves and get an education which is a net positive for the country to have a more educated workforce. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it needs to be fundamentally restructured, whether that means we don't do interest rates anymore, or whether that means we figure out some other mechanism, whether through public investment or what have you to actually finance this. Uh, uh, that's, that's a question for the policymakers. But what I can say from my vantage point is, it is, an, it is a, a ridiculous way to uh, uh, improve the educational benefits of, of the population. It, it doesn't make sense. And it also hurts the economy because you, when you have individuals coming out of college essentially with a mortgage, yes. uh, then they aren't buying traditional mortgages and they aren't buying cars because they don't want to put loans on those. And uh, it, it actually has a fundamental uh, uh, diminishment of the overall U.S. economy. And the New York Federal Reserve has done studies on this, as well as other you know, reputable organizations. So uh, why do we keep harming our economy and harming the financial lives and adding to the financial stress of students so that the government can make money off them? It doesn't make any sense. And it's really, I remember getting the interest rate. I would see the number going up. I finally paid off all the interest. Like I graduated in 21, but I had paid off the interest in 19. And I remember thinking, I haven't even made a dent in these things yet. And I still have a long way to go. And I just I mean, finally there, got the there interest. There are countless examples of yes. individuals whose balances just grow over time. Like they're, they're the amount they, <laughs> you know, they've, they started off owing 20,000 and they've paid in 20, 30,000. And now they own 20, they owe 25,000. I mean, yeah. it happens all the time. Yeah. It's a really, it's a very, I think it's predatory in a way. Cause these people, like if you're somebody who's like, Hey, I'm going to be the first person in my family to go to school. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the first person to finish. You end up like, you don't have anybody guiding you in mm -hmm. the way of like, Hey, you have to pay these loans back. Like you don't even think about them while you're in school. Cause school is, I mean, uh, objectively difficult for people like me, but for, for most people, school is difficult. So, right. um, you know, you can't work as much and, and things like that. And you're not earning a lot until you get that degree. And so it's this never ending cycle, like you had said. So, right. yeah, I don't think there's an, it's a very easy solution that they could just maybe not try to make a bunch of money off 
of students. It's that's actually right, it's just never framed in that way. It's no. never framed that this is like a jackpot for the government. And the fact that the government traditionally, even if someone defaults on the loan, has probably already made a good bit, if not most of their money back. You hear about, oh, the government is going to lose a trillion dollars or whatever number it is yeah. uh, on these loans. That just means that the profit that they were expecting is going to be lowered uh, by a certain amount. Yes. Um, it, it, they're still going to be fine. I mean, we're just <laughs> talking about the principle. When you, when you talk about, you know, they say there's $1.7 trillion in student loans outstanding. That's just the principle. Correct. We don't ever talk about the interest. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's just a whole lot of profit in this for the government. And I don't really believe that that is, is even moral. No, and it, it isn't because it feels like, and it's always been framed, and it's funny it's framed that way, that they're going to lose money when, now to go back to my original point, they've already canceled these loans in theory. Like nobody's paid on them. I mean, I guess I could make a payment, but I have no incentive to over the last two years. So they've already... Right. It seems like they've given up on it, but they will will find out. I more mean, if, here. if you think that the government isn't going to, uh, you know, fully cancel these loans, then it does make sense to pay them Correct. right now because you're not yes. you're not paying the interest at this yes. moment. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, th there have been reports that say, oh, the government is losing a hundred billion dollars a year uh, from this cancellation, uh, this temporary payment pause. Um, and, and again, that's the, the, the whole accounting of this is, is skewed. It, it's, you're, we're talking about losing money. We're talking about the government losing money <laughs> when it's just reducing their level of profit on this overall program. Yeah, they've already, and I also don't, I don't, I don't feel bad for the government losing money personally, but that's another, <laughs> um, so my but last, they're not. I mean, oh. even if you did feel bad, you shouldn't feel bad about this because they're not losing money. They're <laughs> they're just reducing their profit. They're not going to make as many billion dollars. Um, so my last thing, and it's a very big listener thing. A lot of people my age, especially mid twenties, really enjoy cryptocurrency. Um, and I've seen you talk about it recently. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Mm -hmm. um, so it's actually a great time to talk about it because it's getting just absolutely crushed. I mean, it is having a horrible week, as as is mo are most things. But are you surprised that things like Bitcoin and these projects, which my biggest gripe with all these crypto projects has always been, at least if I own a stock in a company, I own part of that company. I feel like what you're doing with cryptocurrency is like you're just buying something, hoping it grows in value, you sell it, and you have more money. That's always I've ever felt. But are you more surprised that like Bitcoin hasn't been a better hedge against inflation, especially with our number being 8.3% or whatever it was, 8.1? Um, are you surprised it's not as big of a hedge against inflation? Does that, because that's what people always framed it as like, oh, it's the, this uh, gold, it's better than gold, it's outperforming gold, all this stuff. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all because uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not a store of value. We've seen that time and again. And it's not a currency. We've seen that time and again. It is essentially a, a, a large gambling scheme that uh, people have imbued with a certain value. And now that uh, we've hit, you know, more stressful financial times, uh, the the people who have set up these systems are are feeling the pressure and they're taking it out on the retail owners of of these coins yes and uh and and that's that's the carnage that we're seeing right now and and it 
the, the lesson is, is that this was never uh, a scheme that was, that was fated to work for the ordinary person. I mean, certainly there were uh, individuals who got in very early and figured out arbitrage schemes and realized that, you know, you can make more on a coin in Japan than you can in the United <laughs> States. And they did this yeah. carry trade um, and, and they made a lot of money and they did very well on it. Um, but that's not replicable for the entire population <laughs> at large. And uh, so I, I, I think this was inevitable and uh, it continues to be so. And the only way that uh, it can be stopped is if the government steps in with some sort of bailout, which would be catastrophic in my view. Correct. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I think that uh, we're, we're just seeing the inevitable byproduct um, something that uh, was, you know, uh, a, a venue for charlatans and 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 thieves and and quacks. It's for me. I always I had Anthony Pompliano on. I'm not sure if you're aware of him. He was he's a big Bitcoin person, and he would he would ride it to the top. And then every time these big crashes happen, I noticed one thing about them. They would say, "Well, it's up 400 percent to gold in the last." you know, how many years. And I would say, well, yeah, I mean, it started at zero cents compared to gold at whatever price it was a few years ago. I'm not even saying gold is a good um, point for this, but they would make these claims and you're thinking, I would always be like, these are very uh, just claims you can, very broad claims that you can make about almost anything. Like I could tell you that used car values are up 700% to gold, but is, does that make right. used car values a good investment? I mean, some might say, but, but um I don't well, believe I mean, that's me, true. To me, uh, crypto was was always similar, and and it, this was made more particularly so when you had things like NFTs and these other mm -hmm. derivatives off it. It was like baseball cards. Like when I was growing up, all of a sudden, my baseball cards that I collected when I was a kid got very valuable, and I would put them in boxes, and I would yes. put them under glass, and I would, <laughs> uh, you know, just hold on to them in in the hopes that you know, this, this could be something I could cash in on later. And then one day people realized they were just pieces of paper and they were just cardboard <laughs> with people's pictures on them and they weren't actually worth anything. And all of the baseball cards that I had forever that I thought were going to be worth so much weren't worth anything. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I guess for two seconds I was upset and then I realized well, yeah, these are pieces of paper that have the picture of, you know, Mark McGuire on them. Like, of course, they're not worth anything. Yeah. And have so that's that's kind of my feeling. These were these collectibles that sort of became valuable because people believed they were valuable. And once they stopped believing that, then they crashed. And, uh, you know, there are probably still enough true believers to keep them at some nominal level of value, but certainly nowhere near uh, the, the, the levels that they were at before. And, uh, and in a way you, it's really hard to be surprised by that. Yes, I agree. So it looks like I'm going to run out of time on this zoom call. So I'm mm -hmm. going to let you, I'm going to let you go. Um, do you want to tell people where they can find you, where they can purchase your books and yeah, thank you for being here. Sure. Uh, prospect.org is uh, the website of the American Prospect. Uh, you can get all, uh, we have a daily website. We have news stories every day. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter at ddayen, D-D-A-Y-E-N. Um, uh, both of my books were published by the New Press. That's the newpress.com. Uh, and you can go there and find uh, information about that. 
Perfect. I appreciate it. a lot of people. I do have a lot of friends that are into baseball cards, especially recently. They're going to have their feelings hurt about that last part, but it makes <laughs> sense to me. I try to tell them everything has a run. Everything goes up in price when people believe it is. And then you're going to spend 15 years looking at these cards of other people. So it is what it is. Everyone has a hobby, I guess. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. Have a good, have a good day. Just drove off some-